0: Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors, and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field learn practical strategies from the best, and become a savvier clinician. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I am super excited about my guest today. Dr. Colleen Cullinan is a pediatric psychologist at Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware. She specializes in integrated primary care, Within the Division of Behavioral Health, Dr. Cullinan completed her Ph.D. in clinical psychology at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan, in 2015. Dr. Cullinan supervises psychology externs and interns, and she directs medical education efforts for Nemours residency training programs. Her presentation and publication records center around integrated care, family-based interventions, and experiential cultural humility training. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Colleen Cullinan. Good morning, Colleen. How are you?
1: I'm great. It's so good to be with you. Good morning.
0: Oh, thanks. So it is our recording date here is February 3rd. Are you buried in snow?
1: Not too bad, even though, so I'm out in Delaware and we got maybe three or four inches out here. They really make a big deal about snow. So I'm sure (laughs) in Michigan, that feels like nothing, but out here it was a big snow.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Well, um I just wanted to say hi, welcome you to the podcast and just jump right in. So you and I've known each other for quite some time and it was a project between primary care looking desperately for some help with all of our behavioral health and reaching out to a clinical psychology program at Western Michigan University here in Kalamazoo and you and I got to be friends and play in the sandbox together. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, first of all, why did you choose clinical psychology and how did you get into this integrated field?
1: Yeah. It's so funny that you, you phrase it as like, you were desperate. Cause I felt like I was desperate too. So we really <laughs> were kind of like a match made in heaven in some ways. <laughs> When I was in college, I I took some psychology classes, I was a psychology major, and I really thought clinical psychology would, would provide me, I could do anything I wanted with it. I thought I could do research, I thought I could teach, I thought I could, you know, help people, help families. And all of that just sounded so exciting. I just knew I would be picking a career that would never be boring. It would always be exciting. And so that was the original driver. And then when I got to graduate school, I really thought I was going to be a traditional family therapist. I was really excited by this idea that the family is a system and that that would be a really powerful place to impact change. If I wanted to help kids, I really needed to help the family. I had to help the entire environment that a child is being raised in. And so I thought that was what I wanted to do is to be a family therapist. And I thought when the family system intersected with the healthcare system, that was really powerful as well. And so in my mind, when I started graduate school, and I didn't really know what I was doing, you know, I was young, (laughs) I was like, I'm going to be a pediatric psychologist who has this family emphasis, this family focus. When I did my master's thesis, it was about family dynamics and family communication in the context of chronic illnesses, gastrointestinal disease. And so I really thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And then later on in graduate school, I had to do a practicum. I had to do a field placement. Um, And I wanted to do it in a healthcare setting. So I found a placement at a local hospital that was like an inpatient adolescent inpatient program, a partial hospitalization program. And I worked in that program full-time over a summer. And that was my first time doing full-time clinical work. I'd I'd never done that before. And it was a real wake-up call for me. I had no idea how the healthcare system worked before, before that practicum placement. And suddenly I was seeing children, kids who were suicidal, who were hurting themselves, who were having psychotic symptoms, really intense mood symptoms, um, who were dangerous to their families, to their siblings. I really hadn't encountered that before. And, And my job in that context was help these kids to stabilize so that they could be discharged and participate in traditional outpatient psychotherapy. And I was so surprised and and now I'm not, now I understand a lot better, but at the time I was so surprised that oftentimes these kids would be contacting the mental health care system for the very first time while they're being hospitalized. You know what I mean? And so I was like, there's something wrong here that children are being hospitalized Children are needing this level of care and they've never contacted a psychologist before, a behavioral health care provider before. I was blown away. And so at the exact same time that that was happening, I was also still learning. I was still in school and I had a professor, um, Scott Ganner, who's excellent, and he started a seminar series with us um, where we were reading books and reading articles about this kind of new idea of integrated primary care of behavioral health consultants who worked in primary care. And the whole idea was uh, whether we kind of like it or not, primary care is the de facto mental health care system in our country, especially for kids. When parents are worried about, um, is my kid doing all right in school? Are they anxious? Are they depressed? Are they developing correctly? Are they sleeping? Are they eating? Are they pooping? (laughs) Like All of those things, they don't call a psychologist they go to their pediatrician or they go to their primary care provider they go to their nurse practitioner or their physician whoever and and that's who's taking care of this stuff that's the entry point for mental health concerns. And so, you know, I was having this experience where I was watching kids suffer tremendously and having extreme distress and, and, and maybe that could have been preventable. And I'm also learning about this hot new area of integrated behavioral health care, where psychology providers or behavioral health providers work side by side with primary care providers to intervene early, to break down some of those barriers, to reduce the stigma and increase the access to mental health care services. So it was like a very exciting time. And then, so that's why I say it's interesting when you're like, we were desperate because I felt desperate. I was like, I need to get into this. I need to learn about this. I need to do it. And so for the next two years, you and I, yeah, we practiced side by side and it was some of the most exciting, it was maybe the most exciting time in my graduate training um, because we saw everything. And and it really was, I mean, I, I don't have to tell you, but it was so exciting. We'd go on these visits and almost every single visit, something would come up. Something would come up that had to do with behavior development or something that I could at least try to be helpful. You know, even when we'd go into like ear infections, it'd be like our hand would be on the door and someone would be like, also (laughs) there, you know, how's it going with daycare? How's it go? You know what I mean? We're having temper tantrums or we're having we're not sleeping at night or we're not eating or we're picky or whatever it might be. And there was always something. And so it was just, you know, the things that had sparked me in college that that psychology could be a really exciting, interesting, like no two days are the same. And I really felt that when we were doing this integrated work together. And I could tell that families were excited about it too, that that suddenly there was this option within an office that they knew in their community with somebody who knew their child and their family. It was just, I, I don't know, it was a great, it was a great time to be learning and practicing. And I learned so much from that. And so after that, I um I did an internship, um a year-long internship that had an integrated behavioral health care focus, where I was I was in primary care um in an intensive clinical experience. I did a fellowship that had an integrated behavioral health care focus. And, and now for the last five, six years, that's what I've been doing for my job is I, I work in an academic medical setting. I spend Like 95% of my time in primary care settings, working side by side with physicians and nurses and MAs, and and we all work to get social workers, care coordinators, occupational therapists, speech therapists, we're all together doing it together. I truly cannot imagine practicing in any other way. And so it's been just the most fulfilling thing to do this work in pediatric primary care. You make it
0: sound so fabulous and everybody should want this. Everybody should want this, whether you're in a small two-person practice or a big healthcare system. I, I think the the challenge is how to pay for it and sustainability, and there are models to do that, but that is always an uphill climb for those of us that do have integrated health. Because after our external practicum, uh, practicum ended, we sort of moved into having social work. And it's definitely different skill sets, but covered a lot of the same. And uh, I don't know what we would do without that. And sometimes I think it's, you know, crisis stuff, like I have a suicidal kid and, you know, let me get my um, part of my team is a behavioral health person. And I think that makes it less scary for the family. And You know, you're not crazy. It's just this is something I can help you with. And I have an expert right here in my office. So that is an kind of a natural slide into that. But you mentioned, and I had forgotten that you used to come with me into every single visit, regardless of what it was. And so it wasn't the like a crisis. It was just like an, oh, by the way, yeah, they are having trouble sleeping. Um, they keep coming out for the curtain call. Um, is there something we could do about that? And sure enough, You had some suggestions and I could either stay, which part of the time I did because I learned so much. And part of the time I could step out and just say, you know, I'm going to let Colleen um, spend some time with you. And and then we would reconvene and you'd like tell me what was going on. You'd chart in the chart. And so we were partners. It wasn't I send you down the hall or to another place in town for therapy. From your experience, because you've been doing this a long time now, what do you see the role of the primary care person in that dyad?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you used a beautiful word, which is partner, you know, and I think, uh, yeah, it's such a good question, because I think I benefit so much from having a partner, and for us to do it together. You know, uh, I know this isn't always true. But a lot of times as the primary care person, you've been taking care of this child since they were a baby. You've known this family and their whole history, you know, their medical history and their social history. And that's stuff that if I was in traditional outpatient psychotherapy, I wouldn't have access to that. Now I have access to their medical chart. I have access to you who knows this family and knows the siblings and knows, you know, maybe you were the primary care person for their parents. Like it's, it's, um, it's, it's a real trust that I'm able to take over and, you know, there's a lot of mistrust in the mental health care system. So that's huge for us to be partners and for me to just kind of take the trust from you and use it to start to give suggestions about something that's so deeply personal, parenting or someone's mood or someone's lived experience, you know what I mean? So, so that is a huge thing. And I think the role of the primary care person is to usher in this idea that mental health care is physical health care, that those things are the same. And you are really the entry point for that conversation to happen, which is, you know, to be healthy means that we take care of the entire person. The entire family. And so sometimes that means, yeah, we need to give antibiotics, or sometimes that means, yeah, we have to do x-rays or extra testing. But sometimes it means, you know what, we actually do need to coordinate with your school to see what's going on here. Uh, sometimes it means we need to, yeah, loop in social work to make sure that we have, you know, the ability to get to medical appointments, or we have the ability to, you know, pay the bills that we have in our home. Sometimes that's what health is about. Sometimes what health is about is talking about or screening for or getting some interventions for mental health care concerns and so i think that's the role of the the primary care person is to introduce and throughout every single well visit and sick visit and you know follow up visit enforce this idea that healthcare and being healthy is to take care of the entire person and there's all kinds of members of our team that can that can make that happen i
0: don't know how come that was not, I mean, I I don't know why it isn't just a thing, why that is such a, like a concept, like, wow, who knew that how you feel affects how you feel (laughs) physically. And, um, you know, I think for people that have experienced depression or anxiety, I mean, I've experienced a lot of anxiety. It is a physical feeling. I mean, I can sometimes just be like, you know, I don't feel good. My body feels bad and I can't, I can't explain it but it just is and it's it's not two separate things. And I think one of the you know things we see so much in primary care, you know, clearly school struggles and tantrums and stuff like that, but the depression and anxiety is pretty significant. I mean, I think it's a quarter to a fifth of kids have a clinical diagnosis of those things at some point and the vast majority of them don't get services. So why not meet them where they are? And I learned so many strategies from you guys, from the the psychologists that were with me in some simple things that I, I think really are this sort of CBT light and not to in any way supplant what you do. But I think back on, you know, working with a kid with anxiety, like, this sounds like a worry thought and maybe it's making you feel bad and you can't help that those thoughts come into your head, but you can manage them. And, you know, here's some things that you could try. And were you in my office, I could say, you know what? I have an expert in here that's really good at helping with some strategies that when you have those worry thoughts, you know how it makes your stomach hurt? Well, we could help with that. Can you talk a little bit about some of those strategies and where are the, the links that we can do a little bit of stuff? And when is it that we really need that higher level of expertise like you? Yeah,
1: you've brought up so many really important points. I think anxiety is a perfect example of something that is a great thing for a team of folks to work on or, or for a psychology person and a, or behavioral health person and a primary care person to work on together, because it so often does manifest physically, you know, kids have tummy aches or headaches or my chest hurts. And, and again, they're going to call the doctor. I'm going to call a psychologist for that. Um, so I think you bring up something really important here. Um, you know, I think sometimes, and I'm guilty of this too, sometimes we don't give enough credit to just educating and talking about this idea that, you know what? Everybody has anxiety. If you have a nervous system, if you have a body, if you have a brain, you have anxiety. Everybody does. That's a really kind of normal part of the human experience. And so sometimes even just slowing down and talking exactly like you did about this is your body and this is a very kind of normal, natural reaction. This is your body and your brain trying to protect you, trying to keep you safe from danger. And that's okay. I don't want it to get in the way. I don't want your brain and your body to be sending off these signals, trying so hard to protect you, but really it's kind of getting in the way of you doing the stuff you wanna do, getting in the way of you doing your very best at school or hanging out with your friends or getting along with your family or going out and trying new things. So sometimes I think even just slowing down and talking about what is happening here. I like to talk about it like the the bees that we have a brain, we have a body, we have behaviors and all of those things are working together all of the time. And sometimes when one kind of gets activated, the others follow suit. So if my body starts kind of having a sign or a signal, like, oh something's not right. Or I, maybe there's something threatening or dangerous happening here. Now my heart starts beating a little faster and my brain starts going, Whoa, there's something wrong here. Like my heart's beating fast. And suddenly I'm doing stuff. Like I'm trying to get out of the situation or I'm trying to, you know, um, leave, or I'm trying to, I don't know. There's all kinds of things that we do with our brains, with our bodies, with the things that we are doing, the things that we are thinking, and all of those things work in concert. And so sometimes just providing some education about what is anxiety. It's a perfectly normal, natural, not actually dangerous, physical uh, thinking, behavioral response to when we feel scared or threatened or stressed or whatever it might be. Sometimes there's a lot of confidence building that can happen just naming it like you had said earlier, just saying this is what's happening. It happens to everybody. Our job is to figure out how we keep it from interfering with your life or the things you like to do, or the activities, or your family, or whatever it is that's important to the person that you're speaking with. So I really think there is a lot of value. I spend time also talking about, um, well, I just call them the rules of emotions. And I think this can give kids a lot of confidence too, which is, the there are three of them in my book. (laughs) Um, Emotions are not permanent. They never last forever. They feel really bad when they're ramping up, When they're peaking, but they will ramp down. That is how emotions work. No emotions last forever. And you can solicit examples like, you know, nobody feels anxious 100% of the time. Nobody feels happy 100% of the time. Nobody feels sad 100% of the time. Emotions are changing things, they're never permanent. And so that's the first rule that I talk about. The second one is we're always having multiple emotions at the same time. We're always having multiple things going on at the same time. Sometimes, as we were just talking about. Naming it, recognizing it, creating some distance between uh, some of these emotions can be really helpful. So emotions are not permanent. We have a bunch of them at the same time. And then the final rule that I talk about is emotions aren't good or bad. There aren't good and bad emotions. Happy is not a good emotion, and anxiety is a bad emotion. Or sad is not a bad emotion. Our emotions are all there as like communication tools for us to kind of recognize something's up and I'm having a reaction and that's okay. Emotions aren't good or bad. They're there to help us. They're trying their best to protect us and to give us important information about the situation. And so sometimes even just doing that and to kind of remind kids that feelings are not facts. You can have a thought, you can have a feeling. That doesn't mean that's the truth capital T about what's going on. These emotions come, they're going to pass. There's going to be a lot of them that can be confusing, but all of that is super normal. And again, it's really there just to to, to protect you, to help you. That's what it's trying to do. Sometimes we have misfires, sometimes emotions and our bodies and our brains, like all of that stuff happens. And it's not actually super helpful. How do we figure out how to make you feel more confident in these kinds of situations so that you can get through them or you can live your life or you can go to school or do the things you need to be doing in your day-to-day life and i think so I, i've i
0: think i've used that i'm just thinking of an example um for like example suicidality because unfortunately we see that a fair amount of the time and i often will tell kids um you know these feelings come and go like you said they're not permanent how long do they last is it five minutes? Is it 10 minutes? Is it an hour? And when it peaks is when you're at highest risk, because then you might act on it. But if you know that it's going to kind of fall, then maybe there are some strategies to get you down the hill. And that's where things like safety planning, doing um, what are some distractions you can do when you have that feeling to let it kind of settle down. And I think that's a, a helpful for people because when you're feeling bad, you feel like you're going to be there forever. Yes. And, and, you know, that can be scary and it feels like you're stuck or, I, you know, there are a couple of things that stick in my head um, that I see a lot. Fear of vomiting seems to be, and I forget there's a name for it. There's a phobia um, or this feeling that I'm, I'm afraid I can't swallow. And I've seen that a fair amount of times where kids are freaking out and and then if you can walk them through like, okay, vomiting's gross and it would be terrible, but what would be the worst thing that would happen if you did vomit? And then what? And then what? Can you talk a little bit about that sort of actual things that maybe we could talk a patient through?
1: Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think you you're highlighting something that's a little bit tricky when we talk about anxiety, which is, you know, there's like, I don't know, like 10 or 15 anxiety disorders. Like it can be right. right? like we can be afraid of we're we're very cool as humans. We can be afraid of anything. (laughs) If we make that mental association, we are capable of imagining the worst case scenario about anything. And so, you, you know, I think sometimes people get really trapped up in like, is it social anxiety? Is it fear? Of, is it a phobia? Is it PTSD? Is it, but the reality is all anxiety is really avoidance at the heart of anxiety is, oh, there's a situation that causes some sort of emotional, cognitive, physical reaction that feels bad. I want to get out of it. And so I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. And we as humans are magical creatures. We're really good at avoiding. (laughs) Like we can do that in our minds. We can do that physically with our bodies. We can get out of a lot of stuff and avoid. And so oftentimes, like if I was going to drill down, what is CBT at its core, especially for something like anxiety, CBT really says, what's the thing you're afraid of? Do that thing more. The more you do it, the easier it gets. And what's really cool about kids, I think even more than adults in some ways is like, Kids know that (laughs) they sense that that's the case. They're just afraid to do it. You know what I mean? They're just, and they don't know how to do it. And, but I think if you talk to a kid and you say some version of like, yeah, I think the real core of what we got to do here is figure out the thing that you're scared of and find ways to do it more. The more you do it, the more you'll get used to it, the easier it's going to get. And you'll be able to cope with and deal with all the thoughts and feelings and physical experiences that you're having. And kids kind of get it.
0: Let me just stop you right there, because I think what you said is really critical. So CBT at its core is figuring out what are you afraid of doing it more, which I think is the part that people would be like, what? And the third thing is then figuring out how to get to that doing it more and not it, it not being a problem anymore. Did I get all three
1: parts? Yeah, I mean, the more you do it, the easier it gets is really the core of it. And it's not that anxiety is ever going to go away. Again, right. anxiety is designed to protect us. It is an essential feature of who we are as humans. It's an evolutionary function, and I will spend time talking to kids about that. Um, it's never going to disappear, and we wouldn't want it to. That's not really the goal of any of this. It is the more you do it, the easier it gets. And we want it to get easier so that you aren't, I don't know, home alone in your room by yourself all the time. Would that be safe? Capital S, like nothing could ever hurt you. You'd never be embarrassed. You'd never be hurt. You'd never, uh, you know, have a panic attack. I don't know. You might still have a panic attack, honestly. (laughs) yeah, that's possible. I guess we could create a world where you were a perfect avoider and you would never experience anxiety, but then you'd be trapped home alone in your room by yourself. And that's not a life. That's not a life that brings joy or meaning. And so I think like starting to provide a rationale for some of the things that have to happen with CBT. So I think for anxiety, a lot of people practice CBT and people do it in different ways. There are different ways to approach anxiety, but a lot of it has to do with how do we tolerate or accept or experience the distress that is associated with finding the thing that you're afraid of (laughs) and doing it more the more you do it, the easier it gets, but that's really hard for kids. So I think a lot of the strategies are about how do we get you to be able to participate? In something that's called exposure therapy. And again, now we're starting to get into something that's a little bit more like your original, original question was, you know, everybody has anxiety to some degree or another. When is it impaired? When do you know that this is something that requires traditional psychotherapy? To me, it's the impairment piece. It is like, I'm not leaving my house or I'm not talking to my friends or in these kind of coronavirus times, I'm not texting, I'm not Skyping or FaceTiming or Zooming. Like I, I, that is too paralyzing for me. So I'm not doing it. Or it's things like I'm failing school because I'm too scared to log on and do the things I need to do. Or I can't go on the hybrid days because I'm, I'm paralyzed. There's germs all over the school. Like when it's starting to get to a place where it's getting in the way of my performance at school, my relationships with my friends, me being able to participate in my normal activities, my sports or my clubs or my hobbies or whatever it might be. I'm fighting with my parents because they don't understand. I'm I'm not sleeping at night because all I'm doing is like going back over all the things that happened to me earlier today. Those are the situations where I'm like, that's not just sort of like typical normal stress reaction stuff. That's now it's getting in the way. So that's to me the marker of like we need something that is more traditional CBT. And again, all the things that we do are in the service of getting you back into the stuff that is good for you and healthy for you. So again, that's where the primary care person and the behavioral health person work together so beautifully is to say, this is all about your health. This is all about you being the healthiest version of you. We're working together to make that happen. So in terms of strategies, like I said, I think as a primary care person, the strategies that you can really teach or emphasize or skills that you can do, to me, those are going to be more in the line of the distress tolerance skills, or like the acceptance kind of present moment skills, that are kind of the foundation to be able to provide it to be able to participate in something like exposure therapy, if that's what we need. And so, exposure, oh, sorry, I, go ahead.
0: Oh no, I was just thinking about so, for example, the distress tolerance. So a kid who's maybe struggling with. They do a lot of stuff. They go to school and all that, but they can't spend the night at a friend's house. And so talking a little bit about so it's not super impairing, but, yeah, they wish they could do it. So maybe talking about, yeah, you know, these are just thoughts that something terrible is going to happen when you're away from home. That's pretty common, and but it sounds like it's in, a, in the way a little bit. Maybe it makes your stomach hurt. There are some things that maybe can buy you a little time so that that feeling may pass. And that may be some things like some breathing strategies. And if that's all it is to get you over the hump, that might work. Or I think of the five senses. I like that one. And sometimes I'll do that with kids right in the office like, you know, five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, one thing you can taste, and walk them through that. I mean, that's pretty simple and certainly not the kinds of things that you would be able to offer, which would be that whole next level. But I I do think there are some things that we could at least suggest in the meantime, maybe to bridge or if it's fairly mild. Do you think that that makes sense?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I am a huge fan and I think that primary care people are more than capable of doing exactly what you just did. It takes about as long as what you just did um, takes, which is can I can and and I love asking permission to provide the education, but can I can I tell you a little bit about some stuff that's worked for a lot of people that um, I talk to and hang out with? Can I tell you a little bit about this breathing technique that is specially designed to kind of turn down the volume <laughs> on your nervous? Oh, that's a great way of
0: saying it. Turn down the volume.
1: I like that. Yeah, your nervous system's firing on all cylinders. Can we turn down the volume? Like, can I share with you? A couple of strategies that I know that have to do with breathing to turn down the volume. Or, like you were talking about, grounding techniques, which are excellent. You know, I talk a lot about the spotlight of your attention you have attention. You're an amazing creature. You have attention. And where you place the spotlight of your attention, your whole body and your brain and your emotions are going to follow. The spotlight of your attention is incredibly powerful. So if you put the spotlight of your attention on uh, what's the worst case scenario, or I'm at this sleepover and something bad's going to happen and I can't go home and I I don't want to call my mom because I'm going to be embarrassed. And if you put the spotlight of your attention on those thoughts and feelings and physical experiences, it's only going to ramp up. Can you change where you put the spotlight? And that's what that grounding technique is all about is let's turn the spotlight to five things you can see. You know, Let's turn the spotlight to, and when you do that, our brains are incredible things. All you have to do is shift the focus. And it like, like you said very beautifully, it buys time for the emotion to change or pass or you know, and sometimes it'll get worse before it gets better. I think that's a huge part too, is like prepping kids for the fact that like, yeah, you're going to try this stuff and it's not going to work capital W immediately. <laughs> like you need to give it a second and really, you know, give it a good shot. So I often talk about making a plan about what are five things you can try? What are five? And you could do like grounding things, like like what you were saying with the five, sentence, five senses. that might be a thing to try, but maybe what you do is, let's make a list of five things. You can even write it on your phone and put it in like the notes thing, or you can write it down in you know, pretty glittery ink and take a picture of it or whatever it is that you wanna do. But can we get something on your phone that says, if I feel like my brain and my body and my behaviors are are kind of feeling overwhelming or out of control, can I take one deep breath? Can I do one grounding exercise? Can I text my mom? Not call her or, you know what I mean, but just do something like, small, text somebody who you care about. Can I look up a, can I, can I excuse myself, run to the bathroom and look up a funny video on YouTube? Can I have a drink of water? You know, five things that are easy, sort of discreet. And now we have a plan. Sometimes, sometimes anxiety is really just like taking something that feels really out of control and putting it back in someone's control. Focus on the things that you can control. Use the spotlight of your attention in that way. Well, and those
0: sound like, Those sound like doable things. And and again, I bring it back to, you know, suicidal ideation, not necessarily to avoid, but that spotlight, the spotlight being I can't think of anything else except I want to die because I can't stand how this feels. But maybe if I could put the spotlight away for a minute and have those things that I can do, maybe that feeling will subside. And the next time that whatever argument with my mom comes about what a terrible student I am. I'm not going to go right to, I, I need to be dead. You know, I can do other things first. And I think that's pretty, um, I think that's a pretty common kind of way that kids get someplace. This is so bad. I can't imagine any other option. And you're just saying, Hey, there might be some other options to tolerate these crappy feelings. And, And you don't have to go down that. And then I think it makes it a little bit less scary and, the fact that a lot of people have thoughts like, gosh, I wish I wasn't here anymore um, or it would be easier if I were dead. I don't think that's that uncommon, but we don't want it to go to. And that's the only thing I have to do.
1: Right. I think you bring up something really important. And I and I, I don't always say this to kids, but I do say it to my medical colleagues and medical residents and medical students. When kids are feeling suicidal or even like non-suicidal, but wanting to hurt themselves they're trying to solve a problem. (laughs) They have a problem and they're trying to solve it. And we all know as adults and medical professionals, this is not a good solution. This is not a good solution to kill yourself, to hurt yourself. Those are not good long-term solutions. I think as a pediatrician or as a pediatric provider, your job isn't to solve the problem. (laughs) You don't have to solve the problem for that child. A psychologist can do that. Somebody or a, ther- a therapist or a social worker or somebody who has some trained um, expertise and time can help solve whatever the problem is. It's just like, yeah, can we do some other stuff so that I, so that we can get to a place where you can work with somebody who can solve the problem? You know what I mean? Or who can address the problem more purposefully or uh, directly, I guess. Like that decrease,
0: decrease the volume so it isn't screaming in your ear. And right. I do think that, you know, most of us that are primary care providers get scared. You know, the soonest a kid says, yeah, I've had thoughts, I want to die. It's like, oh my God, I have, there is nothing I can do about this. This is terrifying. It's totally out of my wheelhouse. And I don't think that's the case. I think we can, can help. And yes, they may need to go on to see somebody to help them manage that and solve whatever that is, like you're saying, but we can bridge that gap and kind of help tease out like maybe there are some other strategies. Maybe that isn't the only one. And then of course help parents because they're going to freak out too. Right.
1: Right. I mean, I think you bring up something really important, which is I, yeah, I've been trying to do this for a long time now. I've seen a lot of kids who are in crisis or suicidal. I still get scared. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think sure. you get out of it. If you don't have a little bit of fear, you know what I mean? Like, but again, I think it's really powerful as a primary care person to model what we're talking about here, which is I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared too. I need to take a deep breath, remember where I am, remember what the purpose is, and be present in this moment with this child and this family. And I think that's incredibly powerful.
0: Well, that's helpful. I, I think that it is the, I guess what I've tried to do in doing some trainings with primary care is at least a little bit of an assessment of how bad is this? I mean, if you've got a kid that's sleeping with a gun under their pillow, okay, that's one level of bad. But then there's also this level of, yeah, my I broke up with my girlfriend two weeks ago and sometimes I wish I wasn't gonna wake up or it'd go away. Well, those are different and I think we can tease that out a little bit because I don't think it's an all or none thing that oh my God, somebody has those thoughts, go to the emergency room because, the, you know, and I don't think you need that. And if you have behavioral health right at your hip, 90% of the cases you don't need to send to the emergency room. Yes, you may need to get them some other therapeutic help, but it's not It's not imminent. The, I think, it, at least in the primary care setting, that imminent risk is not that common. It happens, it happens, but Honestly, since we started having behavioral health in our practice, I mean, I would say for the last three years, I haven't sent a kid to the ER because that's not where they needed to go. They needed help. And sometimes the next day. But there is this, it's not really an algorithm, but I think you're right. If I can stop, take a deep breath and think, I got this. I have a plan. I have a plan. So maybe that's the part. Maybe (laughs) I need to make a plan. Oh, when a kid does this, these are the five things I should do.
1: Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, cause I think, I think that's the thing. That's the thing that's the most challenging. I've never been a pediatrician. I've never been a primary care provider, but I don't envy that. It probably does feel like is against you all the time. Like that time is the thing that you don't have. It's the most precious commodity or resource that you have. And so I think when it comes to things like this, being able to slow down and take your time is both the challenge, but also the intervention. Like to model that for the family, to model that for this child, to be like, yes, we can slow down and we can talk about this and we should talk about it. And I want to talk about it with you. That is an intervention. Right, I'm not gonna, I'm
0: not panicking. Right. I'm not panicking. I, you know, we can work on this. It doesn't mean it's gonna happen right this second. I, I often liken this stuff to running a code I mean, if somebody has had a physical arrest, I mean, the last thing you want is the person running the code to be like hysterical and not know what to do. I mean, if you know what to do, everybody knows their part and the dance goes on and it's a beautiful ballet. And I think that can happen in the primary care setting with, I mean, and if you in any way, shape or form can have behavioral health with you right there. I mean, to me, that's the Cadillac of care. And again, the paying for it part is really hard, but I think primary care providers that take care of kids need to lobby for this stuff. We need to make sure that payers pay for that because in the long run, if it saves a hospitalization, an ER visit, that's tremendous. Or you think about, you know, years lost, a kid that won't go to school, who drops out of school. Who's you know holed up in the basement and isn't working? Well, you've lost productive life years. And if you could have reeled that back and done something differently on the front end, it's worth, it's worth the cost. I mean, the return on investment is huge. So why we don't do that, I don't know. I, I think we're pushing for that. And I had a previous podcast with the AAP president talking about this advocacy. For mental health, and I think we all have to push and push and push for it.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I think you are correct in the challenges that you're identifying, which really, unfortunately, have to do with money and the history of our healthcare system being very siloed and fractured, and and us not working together. And we're we're literally paying the cost of that now. Um, and so I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I I know it is going to be slow going but i have a lot of faith that especially in pediatrics this is going to be the issue which is how do we provide care that is based on value as opposed to fee for service how do we provide care that is preventative you know you look at all of the literature it could not be more clear when we look at things like adverse childhood events or experiences and how that impacts physical health the data are coming and they're coming out strong and so i really do Hope <laughs> and and I try to have good optimism that we are starting to present a really compelling case for why this needs to happen, especially for our children. Well, uh, and I think you
0: have to have data, and I'm not a data person, but there are lots of places like where you are and research centers that that data can be there. I mean, I think those of us that are sort of in the trenches and you know we just got to do our thing and keep looking for partnerships in some way, shape, or form. I mean. Sometimes you can partner up with a therapist in town that, you know, maybe at least can do some crisis for you. Like the next day, if you can't work it out that you have somebody in your office, Um, we do have these child psychiatry access programs where you can call and talk to a psychiatrist. Um, So many, many states, and we've talked about this on several podcasts, many states have them. They call them child psychiatric access programs. So you have somebody to talk to, and it's not about medication. I mean, it may be part of it, but that's not what you're. You're like, what are my strategies I need right now? So those are some things, and I think getting to know who the people are and making the case. So, um, so in kind of wrapping up, I'm wondering if I wanted to learn more about CBT strategies, brief interventions, are there some places that I could go, and how would I best find? therapist that might know how to do that because not everybody knows, right? I mean, it's a sort of a special area.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The good news is I do think there are tremendous resources out there. And I, and I really do believe in my heart of hearts while it is ideal, to do what, what we did a few years ago and are continuing to try to lobby for and advocate for all the time that a behavioral health provider and a primary care provider work side by side and work together and in concert. I do think that primary care people have such incredible power and and can do a lot of this. There's nothing magical about what behavioral health people are doing. Like I said, the magic is really usually that they have more time, but you, you all as pediatricians and pediatric providers have The ability to do all the things. (laughs) I really believe that. Um, So there are really good resources. I work for Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children, and the Nemours Healthcare System has um, a website that's called Kids Health, and they have tremendous resources. They will talk about specific mental health care problems. They have articles that are targeted for youth, for parents and then they'll have like separate things that they say for each of those things. So if you want to look up sleep problems or night terrors or um, headaches or ADHD, there's there's a kids Help page for all of those things. And it's one of my favorite resources to point families towards. And I can
0: put that in the show notes as well. And I do know, too, that the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatrists also has a site on Facts for Families that is also some similar resources. So we can put those links in too.
1: Yeah, that's great. I think that um, like the resources online through most children's hospitals are really excellent. Um, The book that I recommend the most to families for just kind of any problem, (laughs) like anything almost, um, is called Raising the Emotionally Intelligent Child by John Gottman. It's an excellent resource. And again, it's not like um, mental health disorder specific. It's not like this is a book for ADHD or this is a book for anxiety. I could provide those specific titles and I will <laughs> if you want me to. But I think that that one is a really good one just for kind of speaking about emotional intelligence and and really the power of having a vocabulary to describe what you're thinking, what you're feeling. That's oftentimes a big problem for kids who are in distress is like, I don't have the words or we don't talk about this as a family or nobody ever really asks me. And just having that sometimes is really empowering. Um, And so those are some of my favorite like online and book resources in terms of finding mental health professionals. I think you've brought up something really important, which is sort of everybody says they do CBT. Like that's like a real hot thing to do is to say, yeah, I do cognitive behavioral therapy. I think the kinds of questions you want to get out there in the community is you know what what are your goals for kids to me again it's always to improve functioning it's like that's what we're trying to do and we're trying to figure out are there things we can change in the things that you're doing are there things that we can change in the style or the way that you're thinking if we can make changes in both of those things then usually there are changes in feelings like usually there are changes in functioning and that's sort of the style or the spirit and so most therapists out in the community want to have some version of that discussion with a pediatrician. And and even community therapists that I know, their most kind of fulfilling referral sources are pediatricians or primary care providers. Because I'll be honest, if we're talking about fears, (laughs) when I was in graduate school, and I was doing more kind of traditional outpatient therapy, I would have fears, like I would say things like your panic attack is not going to hurt you. But I didn't totally know. Like I didn't totally know 100, 100, 150% that there wasn't like an underlying heart condition or there wasn't, I don't know, something else that was going on. Like they're dehydrated and that's why they're having palpitations. I don't, you know, or anemia or something. I I don't know. I didn't go to medical school. (laughs) Um, But having a partner, even if we're not in the same office at the same time, like somebody who we can kind of go back and forth and say, Hey, I just want to send this person that I've been seeing for therapy back to you, just to make sure that their weight's on target and they're not losing a ton of weight or gaining a ton of weight, or that there's not something physiological going on that could be contributing, not accounting for necessarily, but contributing to some of this stuff. Can we work in concert? I think if you as a pediatric provider can find a couple of community therapists that you have that level of relationship with and vice versa, even if you're not in the exact same place at the exact same time, which would be the ideal, it's still... Approaching something that is really good care.
0: I think the, the word is, I think, partnerships and making friends and having two-way communications. And I, I mean, I was so fortunate to cross paths with you and your colleagues because, I mean, honestly, I, I mean, it may sound flip, but I mean, you changed my life in terms of how I see kids. And to know that to be able to tell a kid, yes, I know you have chest pain, but we've done some some tests, you know, we've looked at some things. It's not a, you're not having a heart attack. This is panic. This is what it feels like. And if you can just say, oh, that's my anxiety. If I take some breaths and I do some things. This will come down. And, it, you know, and and then we're not barking up the wrong tree. You know, we're not having them have to do this huge workup that's unnecessary. So I'm so grateful for you and the work you do. And I, I really want to thank you for the time that you spent with me today. And oh, it's
1: my absolute pleasure. And you, you also, you changed my life too. So I, it's just such a joy to be here. And I truly, my, my passion is to empower pediatricians and medical students and medical residents for all of us to be better partners to one another. So I, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to be here.
0: Well, I think that's a perfect place to end. So thanks so much, Colleen.
1: Of course. Thank you.
0: This is just all such good stuff. I hope you were able to take some notes. So here are my takeaways. Number one, integrated behavioral health at its best joins the primary care provider's longitudinal relationship and builds on the parent-patient trust so that the behavior specialist can then really use their skills to build strategies, offer insight, and they have the luxury of time. So the patient often sees the behavioral health specialist as an extension of us, and that really makes it easier and it's different than sending somebody to an outside therapist. Number two, anxiety. Education is where Dr. Cullinan starts to really normalize what the child is experiencing in that we all experience anxiety, and let's see how that is impacting you and ways that we can manage the anxiety. Number three, the three Bs, brain, body, and behavior, and one activates the next. So the worry generates the stomachache and the headache, and then avoidance follows. So I don't want to go to school. I'm scared something bad might happen. I feel like I'm going to throw up and I don't want to go. And the more I don't go, the more I don't want to go. Number four, grounding strategies like breathing, the five senses, changes the spotlight of attention from the panic point to the breath. And these are strategies that we can teach. Number five, feelings are not facts. I love that. It just seems so simple and it's a great way to just frame that out. Number six, the rules of emotions. They are not permanent. You can have multiple emotions at the same time, and emotions are not good or bad. They're just emotions. Number seven, cognitive behavioral therapy is, at its core, what are you afraid of? Do it more, and it gets easier. And number eight, primary care providers can begin the conversation and introduce distress tolerance using the rules of emotions and grounding strategies. So, you know, we can begin to offer some things like, hey, it sounds like when you get these stomach aches that worrying about something has preceded it. When that worry starts creeping in, maybe you could try something like some deep breathing, However, if the child is paralyzed or not functioning, that's when you can really seek the help of a behavioral specialist. And again, ideally, if they're in your practice, all the better. So I hope that you are able to build integrated behavioral health if you haven't already. It is a life changer. Thank you so much for your time and all the things that you do for kids. You know, those that take care of children are just the best people in the world. So um, my hat's off to all of you. Take care, be safe, and I hope you can find some moments of joy and relaxation during your day. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.